Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. Good morning. Our, our scripture this morning is from uh, Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is that that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the, high, at the thigh muscle. Good morning, everybody. Sorry, I thought I could enter from back there, but the only conceivable way I could see to do that was coming down the stairs. <laughs> which felt a little grand for a sermon. My name's Colin McDonald. I'm one of your lay chaplains, along with Kelly and three other beautiful people. Um, I have the honor of being your interim children's minister for the next few months, so very happy about that. Genesis is a weird book, huh? I read Genesis, uh, to be honest, for the first time in full. I mean, a lot of us know the stories growing up, but I read it for the first time, the whole book, this summer with a, with a dear friend. And we both were sort of in awe of its dexterity, its disjointedness, its narrative leaps and bounds. You have these moments of beauty, even the creation story is full of moments of beauty. I think in this story of Jacob, I think of the way that Jacob describes being, uh, being, being told he has seven years of indentured servanthood to his uncle Laban. And his response is that, knowing that he'll, after these seven years, when the hand of Rachel is, oh, it'll pass in a few days, it'll feel like a few days. You have these moments of beauty, followed by, interspersed with, seemingly endless genealogies, and what reads like tempered revelations of incest. 
It's not unlike the Game of Thrones in some ways. I will say, I do think that more than maybe any other place in the Bible, I can relate to the story of Jacob and the description between he and his brother Esau. Esau, you know, is described as this hairy uh, uh, kind of he-man who, who wants nothing but to hunt and make his father proud. Jacob is described as kind of a homebody, um, which I can certainly relate to. I don't know of any other passage in the Bible where it's just so sort of like loosely done, like he just kind of wanted to relax, just enjoy things. <laughs> But it is a strange passage. As the Benedictine nun and author Joan Chittister writes about today's scripture, we shake our heads mystified at the telling of this story. It appears in the middle of the Genesis text, unprovoked and unclear. It appears out of nowhere and does nothing to advance the plot. Indeed. Only after wrestling with God does Jacob realize he has seen God face to face. That, that would seem a kind of rare occurrence. And yet it was only a few weeks ago in my memory that Pastor Brittany preached on Jacob's dream at Bethel on his way to Haran where he would live with his uncle for these 20 enduring years. He stops along the way, he sleeps, he has a dream of a kind of ladder or staircase surrounded by angels. And only after awaking from that dream does he say, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. Wrestling in our lives, too, comes, it seems, out of nowhere. And not only does it not advance the plot, it throws away the script. Wrestling, struggling, is sort of like bad improv comedy, if you think about it. (laughs) Right, whether from the point of view of the audience or the performer, when it's not going well, No one wants to be there. (laughs) Jacob, in this passage, doesn't want to be there. He's on top where we meet him. After 20 years of a kind of fear-based exile from Canaan, we're at his mother Rebecca's and, and, and God's insistence. He's deceived his father Isaac out of his brother Esau's rightful blessing. After these 20 years of toiling for an uncle who in turn cheats him, he is now returning to Canaan with two wives, two servants, 11 children, dogs, cats, no, a wealth of cattle, donkeys, goats, sheep. He has so much. Struggle tends to meet us less where we are than where we thought we were. It shakes the ground we walk on. We lose a job that we loved or we simply needed, we depended on. We find ourselves in conflict with those closest to us and the nature of our relationship is suddenly uncertain or worse, unsalvageable. We, we break down, we lapse in our struggle with addiction, an ongoing struggle, whatever we're addicted to, until it seems that a starting point is out of the question. And suddenly the clock stops ticking 
Struggle, when we're in the midst of it, feels like death. And what's more, it is a kind of death. And ours is not a culture comfortable with death, with ends, with limitations. You know, I think whether, whether your mind uh, right now is going to uh, your, your 10 to 12 hour workday, depending on when you start and stop checking your email, whether you think about, um, in a city like ours, underdog sports teams, you know, rising, rising strong, never giving up. Even the language we use around death to describe the inexorability of death is shaped around our fear of changing course, of adapting the narrative, of letting it go when we say, they battled with. They battled with cancer. I was struck this week in reading about Hurricane Harvey to hear the mayor of Houston neither, um, neither provocatively or timidly say that the city of Houston was, was going to half to adjust to a new normal. That's the language he used, a new normal. A new normal for the fourth largest city in our country, a city um, that in many ways has kind of defined the American zeal of entrepreneurship. This is the home of uh, the petroleum industry. This is the home of NASA. This is home to 145 languages spoken. Houston, since it was uh, incorporated in the 1830s, has dealt with flooding, of course. They built a vast series of channels to collect flooding runoff. But now it's extreme. It's gotten to a point where the narrative has changed. As the reporter put it, Houston is now forced to consider its limits. And limits have consequence. So Jacob is here, ambulating around his limits. We may see Jacob as uh, victorious in this passage. If you read it once through, you may just you may hear that in there. The language, even if we don't, the language itself seems unsure. Jacob is called Israel, a name in Hebrew that, according to my understanding of Google, means variously one who is uh, triumphant with God, one who uh, contends with God. I think as, the, as, my, as my searching went on, it got warmer and warmer. One who perseveres with God. We're getting warmer. And then finally, I found one that I, I love, one who simply meets with God. Meets, meets I love because I think that that most articulates what is actually going on here. Like a lot in Genesis, it isn't exactly clear who or what Jacob is wrestling with. We know it takes time because we go from the night into the dawn. We know he is wounded, his hip is, is dislocated. We know he is confused. 
asking the one to please tell him their name. And we know he still wants what he doesn't have or doesn't, doesn't believe that he has. God's okay. God's affirmation, God's blessing. It's, it's a challenge for me to, um, to, read, to read this chapter and enter the interiority of Jacob, as I'm used to doing when I read books. It's hard for me to figure psychologically, emotionally, where he's at in his distance from, in his relation to sin. Hard for me to, to, to know, for example, how complicit he felt in lying to his father and cheating his brother Isaac at his mother Rebecca's bequest, putting on that animal, that goat skin hide, tricking his blind father. Hard for me to know uh, when he then goes on to trick his uncle Laban by uh, stripping, stripping uh, bark to its, to its white part and putting that in the water that the sheep and the goats drink in front of and then in, in turn turn spotted. This is that weird Genesis stuff again, so don't, I, I can't explain it very well. How involved he felt. Or if he simply felt like he was getting some kind of justice, getting what was his. It's hard for me to figure, which makes this question of who he's wrestling with all the more intriguing. Is he wrestling with God? An angel? His brother Esau? Is that who he's wrestling with? Is he wrestling with himself? Or is he simply wrestling with what's unknown? Whoever it is or isn't, I find the quarrel, however, to be less of a competition than a kind of opening, a kind of invitation. This story, too, is going to come out of nowhere. I have the pleasure every week at my, at my job of uh, leading a weekly story time. And about two weeks ago, I was uh, training, I'll put that in scare quotes, a young man on how, how to do story time. And I wasn't going to be there with him that day, and I gave him uh, just a little advice. I said, you know, if, it, if you seem like you're losing your audience, if they seem at all disengaged, just ask a question. Uh, keep them involved in the narrative. Ask questions. So this young man did just that. He asked questions. He asked, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be weird if you had a river in your room? You know, reading where the wild things are. Oh, strawberry, what color are strawberries? Ah. <laughs> and the little boy said, too many questions. <laughs> and this young man in response was, you know, still trying to keep it up, was like, come again? You know? And he said, too many questions. You're asking too many questions. <laughs> the Irish uh, poet and theologian Padre Otuama, uh, in his book In the Shelter, writes about the Buddhist concept and language of mu. 
to, to answer mu in, in a Zen Buddhist tradition in response to a question is essentially to say, you're asking the wrong question. Try again. I think that's what God's getting at. When God asked Jacob, why do you want to know my name? You know, it's either that or he's sort of maybe prodding Jacob for, for Jacob himself having deceived through, through the, the language of names when he told Isaac that he was Esau. But I don't think so. I think that, I think that God is saying moo. It's so, it's so funny, this, this part. Why do you want to know my name? It's hysterical. It's not a real question. You know, when you're, when you're a child and, and another child is tormenting you by hitting you with your own hand and they say, why are you hitting yourself? You don't go, well, in point of fact, you're hitting me. You know, you don't, that's not a question. There are questions we simply don't answer. I think that God is not interested in names here because it is and isn't God that Jacob has met. Rather, Jacob is interfacing with his entire community. Esau, Isaac, Leah, Rachel. Boom, boom, boom. That Jacob has found himself far from. Right, that's the, that's the language we use in starting point to help ourselves articulate what sin is, what we're far from. We're far from God when we sin. Take a moment um, to consider in your own life a struggle past or present and the questions that you thought to ask or the questions that are on your mind currently. I wonder if in the midst of anger, in the midst of disbelief, maybe revenge of one sort or another, either against someone or against yourself, if you stop simply to ask about your hurt, your wound, a wound that we are blessed with a capacity as Joan Chittister calls it, a capacity to endure. Not to triumph over, not uh, endure in some masochistic, solipsistic, uh, he-person sense of what it means to endure, but simply and painfully to claim, to call and name your own. It's so difficult to ask questions like that when we're in the thick of it. It's so difficult, at least partly because at the end of our long journey into night, so to speak, it's something that we have to do alone. Of course, we have uh, support. We just heard in our testimony about that. We have support all around us. And if you don't think you do, if you're in this room, you have support. But once the walk is taken, 
around the lake, once the bottle of wine is drunk, once the pint of ice cream is empty. It's just us and our life, right? Our life that was taken away. And in its place, I'm left with what? A wound. A yellow tape, it seems, in front of the future and the past. Pain, pain is a paradox in this way. It exists in reality, and it exists as a temptation. A temptation of scarcity, a temptation to believe and infer that value, namely our value, comes from without and is thus scarce, is thus hard to locate. And yet what is significant about our capacity to be wounded, to be forced sooner or later to consider our limitations is our capacity to depend on others. To look anew at who and what is around us and see good in it. I think maybe we stop grieving and maybe we don't. Grieving the loss of what we had. I think probably we don't. Just the same as we probably don't forget our triumphs. But again, sooner or later, much later, we may feel ourselves invited to turn the switch, turn upside down that narrative. In Padre Otuama's words, to ask a different question, to stop telling ourselves the story in which this world, our lives, are of so little value as to be reduced to one no longer possibility. In fact, it's my belief that we feel this if we're even trying to be alert on a regular basis, on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, if you're paying attention to all the hurt, all the unsurety you encounter in a day. All deep in life, wrote Friedrich von Hugel, an Austrian theologian and minister, all deep in life is deep in suffering, deep in dreariness, deepened joy. All deep in life is deepened suffering, deepened dreariness, deepened joy. It reminds me of uh, that song, Deep and Wide. Do you know the song? I don't remember the mode. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a something flowing deep and wide. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, I don't know what is going on in Jacob's mind here, which is part of what fascinates my reading of this chapter. But I do have a, a sense, a conviction rather, that Jacob is afraid when he returns to Canaan. I think we know this. I think we sense this fear because of his actions. He, he has this whole 
you know, he's amassed all this wealth, these camps, and he divides the camps in two. He sends one ahead as a gift to Esau, as a kind of pardon. And then not only that, but then he, he starts, in my reading, kind of sending people ahead of him, right? Including his, the servants, the children, his wives. Like, go, go ahead, no, you go, you go, I'll be right behind. <laughs> just in case, just because, why he expects the worst. He is filled with fear at how Esau will react. This brother he is wrong to see Jacob return. And then something miraculous happens. Jacob is, uh, is beginning to bow down to Esau. And what does Esau do? He welcomes him with open arms. It is and isn't Esau that Jacob meets when he says, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. I was not going to get out of here without reading a bit of poetry. But I was reading this book this week. This is by one of my favorite poets, Pam Reem. That resonated deeply with my reading of this passage. This is from a poem called Worth. Pam Reem writes, Oh, thou wert as my brother, wrestling with my words, and I leaned my body into the sport, intent on proving my worth. We tend to prove our worth outwardly. We prove our worth based on our failures, based on our successes, based on those who we perceive as no longer loving or needing us. I wonder what it would look like if we proved our worth inwardly if we sought hope from within. What do you ask when you suffer? What do you see? What do you need? Prove it. <laughs> 